Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 14 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899 by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 12b, The February Manifesto, Part 2 In the usual course, the manifesto and the statutes came before the Senate, without whose authority no law or ordinance or manifesto can be promulgated in Finland. There was no difference of opinion in this very sober and unemotional body, composed entirely of nominees of the Tsar, as to the gross illegality of the manifesto. The only difference of opinion was as to whether the Senate should publish and protest, or protest and refuse to publish. Ultimately, as we have seen, the former course was adopted by the casting vote of the Vice-President. There was a general feeling in Finland, outside the Senate, that this course of action was lacking in firmness, but allowance must be made for the difficult and perilous circumstances. The written opinion of the Procurator-General the keeper of the legal conscience of the Senate, was clear and precise. It was as follows. Whereas the gracious manifesto which has now been forwarded for promulgation to the Imperial Senate does not come in the order prescribed by Section 40 of the Form of Government of August 21, 1772, and Section 71 of the Law of the Diet of April 15, 1869, for the making of fundamental laws in the country, and also since no Finlander versed in legislation has cooperated in the preparation of the project for the gracious manifesto, nor has the Senate been given any opportunity to express its opinion in regard to it, therefore I must suppose that His Imperial Majesty has not been informed in how essential a degree the imperially sworn constitution of Finland and through it the rights of the whole Finnish people, have been affected by the statutes annexed to the gracious manifesto. And whereas I venture to assume that his imperial majesty, providing that the facts in the case were humbly laid before his imperial majesty, would be graciously pleased either to recall the gracious manifesto in question, or at least issue an act of assurance, stating that its contents are not intended to impair the right assured to the diet by the constitution to partake in the solving of such legislative questions as are mentioned in the said manifesto therefore i submit that before the senate promulgate the gracious manifesto the senate ought first to appeal to his imperial majesty in this matter and i venture to express the opinion that such a petition would be graciously received by his imperial majesty, and would in no case be understood otherwise than as a faithful execution of the duty of his majesty's Finnish councillors. The unanimous address of protest which was drawn up by the Senate, and which was proposed should be presented to the Tsar in person by the Vice-President and the Procurator-General, is a powerful, and in some respects a touching document, especially when it is remembered that the senators hold their offices by imperial favour and that a majority of them are identified with the party which has, in the past, been accused of undue sympathy with Russia and Russian interests. It firmly repels the illegal methods of the manifesto, while admitting that there may be subjects for legislation not provided for in the present law of the Diet. Its main passages are as follows. By the gracious imperial manifesto of the 3rd, 15th of this February, your imperial majesty has established special fundamental statutes in regard to the preparation, revision, and promulgation of laws issued for the empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland. 
while the Senate, according to your Imperial Majesty's gracious command, has published the copies of the said gracious manifesto and the fundamental statutes which have been received, the Senate, to whom the general guidance of the country has been entrusted, has regarded it to be a holy duty, enjoined not less by its oath of office than by its aforesaid capacity, most humbly to express to your Imperial Majesty the doubts and scruples which the said gracious manifesto and fundamental statutes have called forth in the Senate. The domestic government of Finland and its relation to the Empire were established by Emperor Alexander I of blessed memory, by gracious assurance of 15th 27th of March, 1869. Through this solemn promise, which was, as the Emperor graciously pleased to express himself, drawn up in the presence of the estates of the Diet, and proclaimed in the sanctuary of the Most High, the Emperor confirmed and ratified the religion and fundamental laws of the country, as well as the privileges and rights which each class, in the Grand Duchy in particular, and all the inhabitants in general, be their position high or low, have hitherto enjoyed according to the Constitution. That the Emperor hereby referred to the constitutional rights due to the Finnish subjects, according to the constitution formerly in force in Finland, or, more definitely speaking, to their ancient right of self-taxation and participation in legislation, is self-evident. After reciting the series of imperial speeches, proclamations and assurances following the Borgodiet, the Senate went on to say, Since Finland is connected with, but subservient to, the Empire, which has the sovereign power, it follows as a natural consequence that a number of questions, principally those which concern the order of succession, the imperial family, and international relations, are entirely exempted from the treatment of the Finnish authorities. But questions which, according to the constitution of the country, as it had been established and applied by Emperor Alexander I and his heirs, devolve upon the Finnish authorities, cannot be exempted from the legal treatment of these authorities simply because they also concern the whole Russian Empire, or general interests, or otherwise are connected with the legislation of the Empire. For the said constitution, whose object, as Emperor Alexander I had many times asserted, was to provide for the Finnish people a national and political existence implies that Finland is an internally independent legislative and administrative district, for which laws are made by the monarch with the cooperation of the institutions of the country. In case the constitution requires the action of the Diet in making a law, the decision of the Diet ought to be confirmed by the monarch without alteration, or the matter must be considered as having lapsed for that time. In other cases, the monarch alone makes the decisions which he regards to be beneficial for the country. In Section 5 of the Fundamental Statutes, however, it is ordained that in regard to the legislative proposals, which, according to the form of government for the internal administration of the Grand Duchy of Finland, are handed over to the Finnish Diet for treatment, it is also necessary to have the opinion of the Diet in the elaboration of the so-called imperial laws. But the legislative proposals which, according to the fundamental laws of Finland, ought to be handed over to the Diet, are not only subjects for the opinion of the Diet, but should be decided by the Diet by enactment, which, as above observed, ought to be confirmed and ratified by the monarch without alteration, or be vetoed. Since the wording of the aforesaid fundamental statutes implies the possibility that a law could be issued at variance with the opinion of the Diet, these fundamental statutes consequently contain a restriction in the rights which are assured the Diet by the Constitution, and this restriction is all the more alarming since the scope of the laws, which may be considered to touch the interests of the Empire, is in no way restricted but could be extended to any legislative subject. 
Therefore, since the fundamental statutes in question imply a deviation from the Constitution of Finland, it follows that this legislative act ought not legally to have come into existence without the cooperation of the Diet, since, according to Section 71 of the Law of the Diet, fundamental laws can be made, altered, explained, or repealed only on the representation of the Emperor and Grand Duke, and with the consent of all the estates. The Senate, therefore, feels called by duty most humble to announce to your Imperial Majesty that the legislative act now in question has not come into existence in the order prescribed by the fundamental laws of Finland. Neither does the Senate hesitate most humbly to express the conviction that the Finnish people, both high and low, must therefore regard it as a suppression of the constitutional right of the Finnish people, while this people is not conscious of having forfeited this right through any act or conduct on its part. Most gracious Emperor, the inhabitants of Finland will never cease to bless the memory of the high-minded monarch who, when Finland, at the time of her union with the Empire, went to meet new destinies, knew how to bind this people to his imperial person by the inseparable bonds of faith and love. The Finnish people are all deeply conscious of the debt of gratitude which it bears to all its succeeding noble monarchs for the protection they have given this people, and for the benevolence they have shown it. It also has such a high esteem for the consecrated person of the monarch, and for the irrevocability of the imperial word, that it has always seen in them an unfailing support for maintaining the lawful position of the country. Therefore, your Imperial Majesty's Senate cannot for a moment think that it is your Imperial Majesty's gracious will and intention to recede from the solemn assurance to the Finnish people which your Imperial Majesty gave on ascending the throne in regard to preserving the constitution of the country steadfastly unaltered and in full force. The Senate must therefore suppose that the constitutional rights of Finland have here been overlooked, an oversight which, unless repaired, will spread great uneasiness and dejection among the Finnish people, and paralyze its efforts for raising the standard of education and prosperity in its northern home, so little favoured by nature. Whereas the Senate has the firm conviction that your Imperial Majesty by this as well as by all other imperial acts, intended to promote the welfare of the Finnish people, and whereas a due consideration of the constitutional rights would not be at variance with the order prescribed in the fundamental statutes, the Senate ventures in all humility to request that your imperial majesty may graciously please to declare that the said legislative act was not intended to restrict the constitutional rights of the Finnish people. Since, however, there is no doubt but that there are legislative questions touching the general interests of the empire, which ought to be treated in another way than hitherto customary, and since the Senate is convinced that the Finnish people will not hesitate to make the concessions and sacrifices which are needed for the real good of the empire, the Senate also ventures, in all humility, to request your Imperial Majesty to appoint a committee of properly instructed persons, both Russians and Finns, with the gracious command to prepare a proposal for a law in regard to the legislative treatment of matters touching the general interests of the Empire, which proposed law, after a careful preparatory examination, should be handed over to the Finnish Diet to be treated by that body in accordance with the Finnish constitution. When the Vice-President and the Senate and the Procurator-General proceeded to St. Petersburg with this remonstrance and suggestion, they were not received by the Emperor, and on their petition, being handed in by the Secretary of State for Finland, it came back with the Imperial endorsement, Does not deserve any intervention. Meanwhile, the Estates, through their law committee, had taken note of the grave encroachment on their guaranteed rights, and they too resolved to send in a protest 
after mentioning some irregularities in the presentation of the military service bill, which will be referred to later on, the address from the estates proceeded to point out that the course of legislation for laws to be enforced within the Grand Duchy, ordained by the statutes contained in the Imperial Manifesto, deviates essentially from that prescribed by the form of government of August 21st, 1772, and the law of the Diet of April 15th, 1869. The Diet would, under the new scheme, take part in the making of imperial laws, or laws in common for the Empire and the Grand Duchy, only by giving opinions which, after being examined by the Imperial Council, could be subject to alteration when finally brought before His Imperial Majesty. Thus, since the Manifesto aims at an alteration of the fundamental laws in force, and since such an alteration can only be made by representation from the Emperor and Grand Duke, and with the unanimous consent of the Diet, it is evident that the Manifesto which has come into existence without the cooperation of the Diet cannot have the force of law in Finland. With respect to this, and since such a state of things is apt to disturb the reverence which our people have since ancient times paid to the laws of the country and to the word of the monarch, and since there is cause to suppose that the real nature of the matter has not been completely represented to his imperial majesty, it must be considered the urgent duty of the Diet, not only its duty to the country, but also to the monarch, to try to bring the said circumstances to the knowledge of his imperial majesty without delay, and to obtain an arrangement of the legislation treated of in the manifesto, in a manner complying with the requirements of the constitution. The marshal of the nobles and three talmen of the clergy the burghers and the peasants duly went to St. Petersburg to present the petition, but they got no further than the officers of the Secretary of State. His Majesty, the Secretary announced, felt greatly moved because they had thought he would break his word, declared that he would not receive the deputation, but told the Minister's Secretary to request the members of the deputation to return to their work and also to inform them that his imperial majesty considered that he had given the country the best guarantee for an undisturbed preservation of its home legislation when he himself undertook in every separate case to decide if a matter was of that nature that it ought to be classed under imperial legislation and if so be referred to the consideration of the highest legislative authority these successive rebuffs were naturally very disheartening to the Finlanders, who saw their inheritance of self-government disappearing before their eyes, as if by the action of some irresistible and silent force that was deaf to all appeals and arguments. Nor were the complacent assurances of the Tsar's personal attention in every separate case regarded as providing any adequate substitution for well-defined constitutional rights. Even if the present emperor's knowledge of the Finnish constitution had been as extensive as that possessed by the first or second Alexander, and even if he had had at his side, as advisers, statesmen of the stamp of Rebinder and Armfeld, instead of a group of officials intent only on unification, such assurances could only have possessed a temporary and personal value. It is interesting to remember that this very point of benevolent despotism as against constitutional guarantees, had naturally come up in the course of discussion already referred to between Alexander I and Madame de Stael. Alexander recognised at that time that a semi-Asiatic despotism was an impossibility as a permanent arrangement in an empire coming rapidly into contact with European civilization. Madame de Stael was eager to assure the Tsar that a constitution was unnecessary, since his known character and amiable intentions were at once a charter and a constitution for his empire. Alexander's reply, that even if that were so, he personally could only be regarded as a fortunate accident, has become classical, and is the conclusive answer to such arguments. Even the fortunate accident is in this case wanting, for how can the future be regarded as safe under the personal attention of a Tsar? 
no matter how well-meaning, who has shown himself so deplorably ignorant as to the past, so obstinately inaccessible to argument as to the present. One more attempt was to be made to impress upon the Tsar the nature and extent of the dismay created in Finland by what Monsieur Pobidonostsev has admitted to be the suspension of its privileges. The Senate, combining the executive and the supreme judiciary of the country, had protested unanimously that the manifesto and statutes were illegal, and in doing so they acted on the written opinion of the Procurator-General appointed by the Tsar to advise the Finnish Senate on points of law. The estates, divided as they had been only in the last diet by bitter party strife, were absolutely unanimous in their protest, but like the Senate, they were refused even a hearing. All this time the emotion and anxiety of the people at large continued to grow in extent and in intensity, and messages were pouring into Helsingfors asking for news and advice. Suddenly, and altogether independent of the political parties and party leaders, the idea sprang up of a personal appeal to the Tsar direct from the heart of the nation. There was absolutely no organisation in existence by which to collect the signatures of so many people distributed, in their villages and farms, over thousands of square miles of thinly populated country, which was at that time of year deep in snow and ice. The towns could be reached by railway, but there were hundreds of remote villages and homesteads, as well as islands lying miles out in the frozen sea, that could only be reached by sledges or snowshoes. For reasons connected with the activity of the Russian secret police, then at work in the Grand Duchy, it was decided that the post office could not be used for sending out copies of the address and collecting signatures, so volunteers were called, for who would undertake to carry the message by word of mouth? A hundred were chosen, the address was drawn up, and over five hundred copies were made by hand, one for every parish in Finland. The idea being that they should be read in all the churches and signatures affixed on Sunday, March 5th. There were some extraordinary instances of enthusiasm and devotion. The village of Rovaniemi, on the Arctic Circle, had been fixed on as the extreme limit to which it would be possible to carry the address and return with signatures within the time assigned. But at Rovaniemi they protested against the exclusion of the people of Kitila, their neighbouring village, lying over a hundred miles to the north across the trackless snow. There were still two days to spare. It might just be done, and the champion snowshoe runner of the district volunteered to carry the precious paper. It was already evening but he set out at once on his dark and lonely journey, pressed forward through all that night and half the next day, and reached Gitila at noon. Here again, runners set off for the outlying hamlets and brought in a further band of signatories, before the messenger set out to return. Within ten days of the commencement of the movement, over 500,000 signatures had been affixed to the address and a delegate appointed from each parish to proceed to St. Petersburg and present it to the Tsar himself. This last development had not been thought of as part of the original scheme, and it caused some uneasiness to the Helsingfors Committee. Five hundred men are not a deputation, but a demonstration, and the St. Petersburg police do not encourage demonstrations. But the idea was attractive, and it was decided to risk it, so a special train was chartered and the delegates had started off on their way to the Russian capital before General Bobrikov, in spite of all his secret police, had the slightest idea of what was afoot. Then there was much excitement at the government house, and much telegraphing to and from St. Petersburg. It was even said that the whole staff being helpless with confusion, General Bobrikov sent his wife to the capital to urge the prompt capture and return of the 500 daring Finns. But nothing happened and the delegates got back none the worse for their trip to St. Petersburg. They were not received, no one could have quite expected that, but the demonstration had its effect. The petition was in the following words. Most mighty and most gracious Emperor and Grand Duke, Your Imperial Majesty's manifesto of February the 15th has caused bewilderment and sorrow in every part of Finland. 
the ancient right of the Finnish people to participate in the legislation through its representatives in the Diet was confirmed for all time to come by Alexander I of blessed memory. This right was further developed and regulated during the reign of Alexander II and that of Alexander III. Nevertheless, the fundamental statutes issued together with the manifesto prescribe that the Finnish Diet shall no longer possess the right guaranteed by Finland's constitution to decide questions of legislation which are declared also to touch the interests of the empire. The very cornerstone of our social structure is thereby being displaced. We, the undersigned Finnish citizens of all classes of society, most respectfully entreat your imperial majesty graciously to listen to our words, as we here lay at the foot of your throne the expressions of our deep concern about the fate threatening our fatherland, in case the stability of its fundamental laws is impaired. Most gracious emperor, under the scepter of high-minded rulers, and protected by its laws, Finland has made uninterrupted progress in prosperity and culture. The people have faithfully endeavored to fulfill all their duties to their monarchs and to the Russian Empire. We know that our country has of late found enemies in Russia, who by means of calumnies have sought to create suspicion as to the loyalty and trustworthiness of the Finnish people. But we know also that all such calumnies are based on falsehood. No country exists where respect for law and legal authorities is more deeply rooted than in Finland. During the ninety years of its union with powerful Russia, social order has never been disturbed in Finland nor have subversive doctrines there found a congenial soil. Feelings of security and happiness have ever strengthened the ties by which Finland has become an inseparable part of the Russian Empire, although these ties have at the same time permitted the Finns to retain and to develop the national characteristics given them by the Almighty and therefore not to be changed by any forcible measures. We cannot believe that your imperial majesty's intention with the manifesto has been to threaten the legal order of things and the inner quietude of Finland. We trust, on the contrary, that your imperial majesty will graciously consider the impression created by the manifesto and will direct that its contents be brought into conformity with Finland's fundamental laws. We refuse to entertain in our hearts any doubt of the immutability of the imperial word because it is our gracious monarch himself who has proclaimed to all mankind that might should yield to right, and the small nation's rights are equally sacred with those of the greatest people. Its love of fatherland is before Almighty God a virtue it can never abandon. Your Imperial Majesty's most faithful and respectful subjects. The State Secretary for Finland forwarded to the Tsar the request of the deputation for an audience, and in return received the following message. Inform the members of this deputation of five hundred men that I, of course, will not receive them, although I am not vexed with them. They ought to return to their homes, and may then send in their petitions to their respective governors who in their turn will send them to the Governor-General, who will send them to you to be presented to me, in case attention can be paid to them. Explain to the deputation the meaning of the manifesto of February 3rd, 15th, after which let it return home. When the State Secretary had delivered his message, 
and had endeavoured to soothe the feelings of the leaders of the delegates by some general assurances that the Tsar did not intend to violate the Finnish constitution, the delegate from Viborg replied in a speech of much power, which, it is said, he had intended to address to the Tsar himself in case the delegates had been admitted. The speech was printed afterwards, and some of its phrases have since become household words in Finland, especially the following passage. Your Excellency, we beseech you having regard to the precious testimonies which His Majesty himself has borne as to how the Finnish people have faithfully served their rulers and made good their confidence, thereby making their reigns sweet and the repeated assurances to the same end which we received from his august father and his deeply mourned grandfather. We beseech you to ask him, if he will, before Almighty God and the judgment of history, bear the responsibility of the moral ruin of a whole nation. Tell him that we have been used to bearing up under severe destinies. The frost has times without number ravaged our sterile fields, and the farmer has in one night lost the fruits of a whole year's heavy toil. But we have humbly borne these trials, supporting one another and trusting in the future, for these ravages have always left some of us untouched. But such a night frost as that of February 15th, the Finnish people have never known. With one stroke of the pen the dearest thing we possessed, and hoped to deliver unimpaired, if not increased, to our children was destroyed that night. Here are none of us untouched, high and low, rich and poor, all of us are alike struck by this visitation of fate. Ask His Majesty if he is rich enough to throw away the devotion and love of such a people. Your Excellency has told us that His Majesty, through his manifesto, has reserved for himself personally to decide in every special case as to which questions shall be referred to imperial legislation and which to the home legislation of Finland. To this we reply that His Majesty's life, like our own, lies in the hands of the Most High. The love of millions could not protect the dear life of Alexander the Second from a handful of miserable men and those who delivered him to them. There was much anger in official circles in St. Petersburg at the proceedings so unprecedented in Russian politics. The members of the deputation went quietly to their homes, and the governor-general, although making the most elaborate inquiries, could find no one to censure and no one to punish for a demonstration that disposed forever of his contention that the country people would be glad to see direct Russian government established in Finland. Only one of the delegates he was able to reach, the bold speaker whose words have been quoted, Mr. Wolf of Viborg, held at that time the honorary appointment of British vice-consul at that port, and some months afterward the Russian government applied for and secured his dismissal on the ground of his taking part in political propaganda. Whereupon the other British vice-consuls throughout the Grand Duchy sent in their resignations on the ground that they did not desire to hold any office that would conflict with the free expression of their views as citizens of Finland at such a crisis. End of section 14section 15 of Finland and the Tsars 1809 to 1899 by Joseph Robert Fisher this librivox recording is in the public domain read by Alistair chapter 13 the military question during all this time the two committees of the diet the military service committee and the law committee were quietly engaged in Helsingfors in considering the new military proposals which had been presented in such an irregular fashion to the estates. The February manifesto and the statutes annexed were not directly before the Diet, but both committees worked under the shadow of these documents, which, if upheld and carried out, rendered their labours altogether nugatory. 
before if the Imperial Council of St. Petersburg was to have the power to shape the scheme as it liked after the deed had finished with it. The proceedings at Helsingfors were a waste of time. It was decided, however, that either to refuse to consider the military proposals on the ground of vice of form, or simply to reject them as unsuitable, would let slip a valuable opportunity of reiterating, in the most formal fashion, Finland's constitutional rights, and at the same time proving the readiness of the estates to make very considerable sacrifices in order to satisfy every reasonable requirement of the Russian war office, with regard to the strength and the efficiency of the Finnish army. The two committees, therefore, went very fully indeed into the constitutional and legal aspects of the question, and, while rejecting the Russian war office scheme, drafted a counter-scheme of their own, which provides for a material strengthening of the Finnish army. These reports, on being received and approved by the estates, were combined so as to form a complete answer, and in this form they were, on May 27th, 1899, unanimously adopted as the humble reply of the estates of Finland to His Imperial Majesty's gracious propositions. This important document must form the basis of the future discussion on the subject, and may be regarded as Finland's grand remonstrance, covering as it does the whole ground in dispute. It is a bulky report, occupying nearly 300 pages of close type, but a good understanding of its tenor and main arguments is essential to a knowledge of the case. But in order to understand the references that are made to the Russian arguments in this reply, some account must first be given of Russia's position and claims with regard to the Finnish army, and of the Russian propositions laid before the Diet. We have already seen, in the early 70s, General Milyutin had endeavoured to bring about a complete union of the armies of Russia and Finland, the Finns being called upon to perform military service equally with the other populations of the Empire and amalgamate with them in forming one Russian army. It is admitted that there was at the time ample room for improvement. Indeed, a Finnish army can scarcely be said to have existed in the 60s. The old Swedish in Delta system provided no doubt, a number of men capable of carrying rifles, but nothing really resembling a modern army. Yet it was abundantly clear from the constitution of Alexander I that conscription could not be introduced into Finland except with the consent of the estates, and Alexander II was wise enough to disregard the wishes of his war minister, and, by meeting the Finlanders fairly on their own constitutional ground, to obtain from them all that was necessary at the time. Once it became clear that a new system must be established if the Imperial Russian Army was to hold its own in Europe, the question of reorganisation in the Grand Duchy inevitably presented itself, and in the very first message on the subject addressed to Finland, it is not difficult to discern the conflict of influence in St. Petersburg between a Tsar, mindful of his constitutional position, and a war office intent only on recruits. On December 31st, 1870, Alexander II addressed a rescript to the Governor-General of Finland, in which he announced the approaching extension of military service to all classes in the Empire, adding that he had decided that it was only reasonable to introduce a similar universal service into the Grand Duchy, in place of the Indelta system. With a due regard to existing law and ordinances in Finland. The Governor-General Count Adlerberg was therefore directed promptly to take the necessary measures for the preliminary examination of the subject, as it was intended to form rifle battalions in proportion to the numbers and the population and the resources of the country. There can be little doubt that, although the constitutional reservation was made, the object aimed at in this rescript, from the military point of view, was the formation of battalions uniform in armament with, and forming part of the same organisation as, the Russian army. Indeed, in further communications the Russian War Office expressed its wish, or rather intention, that the proposed finished army should be subjected to the general military district organisation and the military tribunals of the Empire, that it should accept Russian officers in its ranks, and should be liable to be stationed for service or training in any part of the Empire, where the necessity should arise. This was obviously, as Alexander at once recognised, a matter for the Diet, for without its consent the arrangement of 1809, by which Finland was exempted from conscription, and assured the right to keep her in Delta troops within her own borders and under Finnish officers, 
could not be altered. It followed that, as we have seen, although General Milyutin's circular in favour of forming an amalgamated and undivided Russian army met with the Tsar's general approval in principle, all idea of enforcing such a measure by decree from St. Petersburg had to be abandoned, and the proper authorities in Finland set to work to elaborate a scheme for the Grand Duchy. A military commission was accordingly appointed and met at Helsingfors in 1871, with the idea of preparing a military service bill for the Diet that was due in 1872. It was found, however, that there was at that time nothing for the commission to work upon, the Finnish authorities recognised the necessity that existed for creating an efficient army, as well as for keeping the new organisation in touch with the Russian army and the Russian war minister, under whose command, for purposes of armament and organisation, it would be. But there was no Russian scheme ready, and consequently no model on which to form the new Finnish rifle battalions, and so, after agreeing on a few general principles, the commission had to be adjourned indefinitely. The 1872 Diet thus passed without any military service bill, and it was not till 1877, the intervals being then quinquennial, that the new scheme was put forward and, after a long discussion, accepted by the estates. At the Russian War Ministry there was much fault-finding with the measure as adopted, and General Milyutin endeavoured to get the Emperor to alter it, but Alexander II was true to his pledges and refused to modify the measure which was ultimately, in 1878, promulgated in a form that was in literal conformity with the resolutions of the Diet. And in this there is obvious statesmanship and wisdom. A nation of peaceful peasants is never very keen on military service, especially when their country is threatened with no danger, present or remote, and the easy-going farmer-soldiers of the antiquated in-delta system might have been regarded in the rural districts as quite sufficient for any work they were likely to be called upon to do. There were not wanting voices in the country and in the Diet to maintain this view, and if passions had been roused, sufficient opposition would probably have been created to resist a new proposal of compulsory general service altogether. Both parties had, therefore, good reason to be pleased with the result. Alexander II had secured the free consent of the estate to the introduction of conscription in Finland and the Grand Duchy had established, formally and irrefragably, the constitutional principle that any future military bill must be prepared and drafted in Finland by the Finnish authorities and passed by the Diet, and further, that if accepted by the Tsar and promulgated, it must be promulgated in the precise form in which it was approved by the estates. The Russian War Office and the Imperial Council may advise the Emperor that it should not receive his sanction, but they cannot take up its consideration as an opinion which they are at liberty to consider and amend before it is submitted for the imperial signature. It was thus that the Military Service Bill of December 27, 1878, whose amendment or supersession is now in question, came into being by the joint action of the Estates and the Emperor. The incidents connected with its passing are still a subject of bitter controversy in St. Petersburg, and two of the documents sent forward to the recent Diet from the War Office contained direct charges of bad faith against the Finnish authorities. The reply of the estates to these charges will be found later on in the course of the general argument, but before proceeding to that, we must see what is the nature of the measure and what are the Russian objections to it. It is provided that the Finnish army shall be organised on the basis of universal military service that its object shall be the defence of Finland, and that it shall be composed exclusively of Finnish citizens. The time of service was to be three years with the active army, and two with the reserves. As, however, the number required to be kept with the colours under the Russian War Office proposal was less than that of the available conscripts, it was decided that those who were fortunate in the ballot should pass direct into the reserves, where they were to serve for five years, with 90 days military training in camp during the first three years. After passing through the reserves, all the conscripts pass into the landwehr till the age of 40. The number of men with the colours was fixed at 5,000, composed of nine battalions of rifles, and later on a regiment of dragoons. The Governor-General was to have the supreme command, and was provided with a staff. 
there was also to be a Finnish chief with a separate staff. In matters of command, the army was to be under the direction of the Russian Minister of War, who was for the purpose to have the assistance of a Finnish officer as a reporter and secretary. But the general maintenance of the army, the commissariat, cadet schools, barracks, etc., were placed under the direction of the military section of the Finnish Senate, and on such matters as well as on all questions involving legislation, the Minister Secretary of State for Finland was to report to the Emperor direct. The new arrangements were intended to be operative for a period of ten years, after which they would be subject to revision, and accordingly more than one alteration was made during the reign of Alexander III, the proper legal and constitutional forms being always observed in spite of the attempts of the Russian war office to incite the Tsar to the contrary, and to abolish once and for all what was an offence to them. A separate army within the borders of the empire. Unity in the military law, applying to all who owed allegiance to the emperor, and uniformity in the organisation of the army were their constant aim. Indeed, mechanical unity and uniformity are now the Russian aim in church and state, as well as in the army and every effort was made in that direction. Another commission, a Russian one this time, sat to discuss the question, and gravely reported that it found in the Finnish system many peculiarities which, from the standpoint of special military demands and of general political interests of the empire, were not admissible, being called for neither by the existing local geographic peculiarities nor by the historical conditions of the Grand Duchy. It was regarded as one objection in Russia that the Finnish military law differed in several respects from the general military law of the empire, thus constituting a hindrance to the completest possible uniformity in the organisation of the armed strength of Russia. These divergences, it was held, should, in the majority of cases, be either completely abolished or sensibly modified. But. The worst offence of all lay in the fact that Alexander II had consented to clothe certain important clauses of the law with all the sanctity of a fundamental law of Finland. An attempt was even made, and was repeated in the present year, to represent this as a Finnish trick, General Kuropatkin making a special report on the subject to the Emperor, which report was forwarded to the Finnish Diet. The charge was easily disposed of by the estates, and as a matter of fact, the whole circumstance was, from the Russian point of view, altogether destitute of importance. The object of the Russian war office throughout has been to remove the Finnish military organisation from the field of Finnish legislation, and to bring it within the scope of an imperial decree. The only effect of making this statute, or part of it, a fundamental law, is to render necessary an imperial proposition and a united vote of the four orders for its modification. If both these conditions were gone tomorrow, the Russian War Office would not have advanced one step towards the realisation of its ambition, for the law of 1878 would still remain indisputably a law. No Russian has ventured to deny that, and as a law, it would be altered only with the consent of the Diet. But the Russian controversialist takes an almost Teutonic delight in a prolonged and embittered wrangle over an irrelevant point. The Russian case on this point is that the measure was presented to the estates as an ordinary project of law and not as a fundamental statute. It was during the discussion of the project that the proposal was made and agreed to that 14 clauses of the Act should be declared fundamental, and it was decided to request the Senate to petition the Emperor to that effect. The Diet was, of course, aware that it had no power whatever to introduce legislation, fundamental or otherwise, even the power it has since acquired of introducing ordinary projects of law, was not then possessed by it. But it did not claim to exercise any such right. Its obvious position was that, a proposition being submitted to it in proper and legal fashion, it had the right to propose any alterations or modifications in that proposition, and those alterations or modifications, being accepted by the Emperor, became an essential part of the act when sanctioned or promulgated. If the Russian contention held good, no ordinary amendment to any imperial proposition could at that time have been carried, for the Diet had no power to initiate legislation, 
and to insert some vital amendment is, in part, to initiate a law. Indeed, in another of his communications, General Kuropatkin is betrayed into this very crowning mistake when, as will be seen, he points out as a serious matter, and one tending to invalidate the law, that a certain clause, as passed by the Diet and sanctioned by the Emperor, differs somewhat in its wording from the same clause as it was originally submitted to the Diet. One can hardly complain that Russian officers should be entirely ignorant of the meaning of parliamentary procedure. It is not their business. But there might surely be somebody found amongst the officials who could protect a Secretary of State from falling into such a grotesque blunder. It was, of course, open to the Emperor to take objection to the procedure of the Diet in petitioning him, after a proposition had been formally made, to alter the nature of certain portions of that proposition, and transfer them from the category of ordinary to that of fundamental law. But when the petition was granted, it was surely open to the Tsar to regard that as quite sufficient, without the waste of time involved in dropping the fourteen clauses out of the ordinary military service bill and going once more through the formality of ordering the Secretary of State for Finland to direct the Senate to prepare a fresh series of fundamental propositions involving the fourteen clauses in question. In any case, it is a little late, after a law has been over twenty years in operation, to raise the point that the Tsar acted irregularly in affixing his signature to it. The points declared to be fundamental related principally to such matters as the definition of the object of the maintenance of a Finnish armed force, its numerical strength, the principle of the choice by ballot, the period of service, the plan of mobilisation, and the arrangements for the landwehr. Above all, the proposition that Finnish soldiers should not be placed under Russian officers was made fundamental, and that is resented more than all the rest. And the portentous argument is adduced that, because these things all touch on military efficiency and discipline, they therefore come within the scope of the Ministry of War. And, as obviously no Russian Minister of War could have assented to such things, therefore that Ministry may now comment upon them and alter them at will. Finally, it is advanced as another argument for invalidity that Count Milyutin was induced to believe that the law was only introduced experimentally and for a period of ten years, and that, in the case of need, the necessary alterations in details, or in the wording of the statute, could be easily effected. It is to be feared that ministers have been known, and not alone in Russia, to make use of such arguments in order to facilitate the passing of their schemes, but surely this is the first occasion on which that has been brought forward as an argument for declaring the law invalid. Another vexed point was that of the command of the Finnish troops. Formerly, when there were chiefly Russian soldiers in the garrison in Finland, the Finnish army having shrunk to a single battalion in Helsingfors, the command of the Finnish soldiers devolved on the commanders of the Russian troops dislocated in Sveborg and other fortresses in Finland. But when a real Finnish army was to be created, it was pointed out very naturally that the command of such a body of troops being an imperial matter, should devolve on the Governor-General as the Emperor's direct representative. But the War Office discovered that in the working of this very reasonable arrangement, it resulted that matters pertaining to the economy and the administration of the Finnish army were reported on by the Governor-General in the usual course, through the office of the Minister-Secretary of State for Finland, to the detriment of the dignity of the Minister of War. Not only so, but the Finnish Senate, a civil institution, and therefore beneath the notice of the war ministry, had actually created a military section to look after such matters concerning the Finnish army as pertained to it. This the Russian commission regarded as contrary to discipline, and constituting one of the objectionable peculiarities that should be done away with. Another objectionable peculiarity of the Finnish military service law, in the eyes of the Russian officers, was that it was designed and maintained exclusively for the defence of Finland, and that the landwehr could only be called out in case of an actual invasion of the Grand Duchy. Also, from its smallness, the demand on Finland in men and money was naturally much less in proportion than that made on Russia for its army. 
Of Russians arriving at the age of military service, it was calculated that 36% were summoned to the colours, whilst of Finlanders of corresponding age, only 9.6% were called on. Again, whilst of Russia's total budget, 28% went in military expenditure, Finland only spent 16%. The Russian army cost 2 rubles and 83 kopecks per head of the population, whilst the Finlanders only spent 1 ruble and 35 kopecks. It is interesting to notice, from this carefully worked out official estimate, that expenditure on the navy in Russia has gone up no less an amount than 12 million rubles since 1895, the army in the same period having increased its demands on the public purse by 16 million. The total Russian expenditure on armaments in 1898 is given at 375,244,208 rubles, whilst Finland spends less than 4 million rubles. The unpractical reader might conclude from these tremendous figures that the Tsar's ministers would hasten to point the moral, and would yield to the unanswerable force of the peace manifesto which had appeared only a few weeks before. If by these enormous armaments the intellectual and physical strength of the nation are diverted from their natural application, and unproductively consumed, whilst national culture, economic progress, and the production of wealth are paralysed or checked in their development, and the financial changes following the upward march strike at public prosperity at its very source, then surely the obvious remedy was to make some practical effort to protect and restore public prosperity thus struck at, and to reduce the Russian armaments. If the Russians spent per head on their army only what the Finlanders spend, 15 million or 16 million sterling per year, would at once be released to develop the intellectual and physical resources of the nation. But instead of that, they insist that Finland too shall be made to paralyse her national culture and economic progress by being dragged against her will into the upward march. The Russian Army Commission report, and the imperial propositions to the Diet based on that report, declare that the annual contingent of young Finlanders called to serve in the army shall be increased from the present figure of 9.6% to the Russian figure of 36%, or nearly quadrupled, whilst the expenditure would be doubled, a paralysing upward march which might have appalled even General Kuropatkin. It would have been little wonder that even without the teachings of the Peace Manifesto, the Finlanders would shrink back from the prospect. One more proposal was put before the estates, or rather, a decision of the Tsar was brought to their notice, that relating to the military oath. The dominant party in Russia are, as is well known, as clerical as they are military. Unity and uniformity in religious belief and practice is a thing as earnestly to be aimed at as unity and uniformity in the army. The question of the military oath gives them an opportunity on a small scale of combining their ideals. In the military service law of 1878, no form of oath was distinctly laid down, the authorities being simply referred back to the form used in Sweden and given in section 18 of the form of government of 1772. By that formula, soldiers swore to be true to the king, to the state, and to the estates of the realm. It appears, however, that for some reason this form never came into use. Finnish soldiers taking simply the oath required of civil servants this was felt to be an inadequate form of allegiance for soldiers, and in the 1891 Diet a wish had been expressed for the drawing up of some more expressive form, pledging the men to monarch and fatherland. This is how the matter stood when, towards the end of January 1899, it was announced that the Tsar, on the proposal of the war minister, had decided that the oath which is laid down by law for the whole Russian army must also, for a portion thereof, the Finnish troops, be obligatory. This order, which was quite illegal in form, gave rise to still more serious objections. In the Russian oath, Finland is naturally ignored. Even the Tsar's subtitle as ruler of the Grand Duchy is omitted, and the troops would have had to swear allegiance and obedience, not to their constitutional sovereign, the Grand Duke of Finland, but to the autocrat of all the Russias. 
whilst the oath winds up with the words, In attestation of this, my oath, I kiss the word and the cross of my Redeemer. A formula which would be as disturbing to the conscientious beliefs and religious practices of a Finnish Lutheran as to those of a Scotch Presbyterian. It is true that an explanation was issued by the war minister to the effect that each soldier would be allowed to take the oath according to his faith and right, and that Lutheran chaplains would take the oath of Finnish soldiers and would naturally not require the kissing of the cross. This might be accepted as satisfactory in Finland itself, but one can scarcely imagine a Russian war minister providing Lutheran chaplains to look after the oath-taking of the 5,000 Finlanders drafted every year into Russian battalions. Everything would depend on the administration of the new order, and although trifling in itself, it did much to widen the fear and suspicion felt throughout Finland regarding the intentions of the Russian war office. End of section 15